Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former paratrooper, special forces support group operator, Royal Army Physical Training Corps instructor, and author Mike Chadwick. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Mike's early life, his journey into the military, becoming one of the strength and conditioning gurus when training the British Special Forces tactical athlete, working with UFC fighters, the importance of recovery, training the aging athlete, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Mike Chadwick. Enjoy. Well, Mike, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Absolute pleasure, mate. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, finally got here. We booked this in last month, and then I, I was fashionably uh, late, which is quite rare. But um, yeah, I do apologize. We're here now, mate. No worries at all. Like I said, it gave me a chance to run my dog, so that, that made her happy. Not a big deal. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? So I'm over in Liverpool, England, um, travelled around the country, uh, around the world, various units where I lived as a soldier and where I was as what we call a pad brat. So my father was a soldier as well. So I've never settled anywhere, but I'm finally settled uh, after leaving regular service and opening up the first tactical athlete performance centre in our country, um, up here in Liverpool, so I can be home every night with my little girl. Beautiful. Well, I want to get to that because obviously, I mean, military and first responders, a lot of us spend a lot of time away from family. But let's start at the very beginning of your timeline first. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Yeah, so I was born um, up near Newcastle in England. Uh, My father was a soldier and ultimately we never settled in one place. As I've just mentioned, we traveled around a lot. Uh, from you know various places around the world most lovely most nice was cyprus um, and then ultimately uh, when i was 17 just left school i joined the military as well said plenty of times before many podcasts um, i joined the military not for queen and country i joined because it was the quickest way i could put food on the table as i just mentioned my father was a soldier he left us when we was very young my mum got very sick and it was up to me to go and provide um, for everyone. So it was up to me to go and pull the money in. The quickest way I could get money was to join the army. Um, a lot of officers and commanders don't like me saying that, but that's the truth. And and I think that's the same across the board for many people who end up in tactical athlete development as what it's called now. But, um, but yeah, that's where it started and it ended in Liverpool. So I started this podcast seven years ago now. 
which is, I guess, kind of early in the podcast world. So I've been on this 822 now episode journey of, of learning. Like I'm this perpetual student. One of the real kind of aha moments for me was when one of the guests talked about the number of first responders and military that came through his mental health retreat that had childhood trauma. And when we talk about mental health in uniform, it's not normally something that comes up. It's like, oh, it's what you saw in Afghanistan or, oh, James, you cut that kid out of that car. But when I have so many people on here, I'm like, holy shit, this is a real thing. Because now when we start early life, you know, trauma is comparative. You know, some people's is horrific on paper. Some people you may look at other people's like, well, that wasn't as bad, but it is, you know, for a vulnerable child that needs security and protection and stability, it can be very, very um, detrimental if it's not addressed. So when you look back, you know, what, what age did your dad leave? And then talk to me about that family dynamic, if you don't mind. Like, were you kind of forced to be an adult a lot sooner than a child should be? 100%. So my dad left when I was around about nine or 10. Um, I've got a little sister, seven years younger than me. And ultimately, we ended up moving to a place called St. Helens. Um, and the only reason we moved there, and again, people from St. Helens hate me saying this, was it was because it was the cheapest place we could go. Um, we bounced from house to house, whatever the council would give us. And and listen, I, had a, I from that moment, I had a lovely upbringing. You know, no one was hurting me, no one was beating me up. So I've, my trauma wasn't what wasn't as bad. I just had to grow up. I just had to grow up really quickly and realised very, very quickly that the absolute moment I left at 16 in school, I had to join the army because it was the quickest way I could get money. Now, someone then told me that if I joined the parachute regiment, I would get an extra £200 a month. Um, so I thought, hey, I'm in. And little did I know what that meant or how hard that would be and how much I would have to earn that extra £200 a month. But ultimately, that defined my life because... I was so naive to the situation that when I turned up to Parachute Regiment Depot, which is notorious for being absolutely brutal, I was only set, I just turned 17. So I was meant to start um, a junior entry as we're the only one of the only countries. You don't have it over in America. We have a junior entry here, uh, which I went and redesigned the pathway many years later, but you start at 16. But someone told me if I if I go and passively become a British paratrooper, which you have to be 17 to start, I can earn an extra £200 a month. We've got to pass. Sam, where, where do you want me? Samuel. Um, there was nine out of 65 of us that survived. I was the youngest by a long way. And ultimately, I genuinely believe this is why the first chapter in my book is called this. It was because I had a stronger why than everyone else. Now, there's a study out there, isn't it, that whereby trauma can define someone. And it just so happens to be the right amount of trauma. Too much, and you can go off in one direction. But just enough, it can give you the push to go and do something incredible. I wouldn't say that I had a traumatic upbringing, but I had an upbringing that had an element of trauma in, in regards to, I missed that father figure. And I became the father figure very, very early for my little sister. So I went away to depot, somehow survived by all means possible. I just held on for dear life. I didn't really prep for it, um, if I'm honest with you. And I do not advocate that to absolutely anybody. Do make sure you prep for it. That's what I do now. And, you know, and it hurt every single day. But ultimately, if I didn't win, then we didn't get fed. And that was the bottom line. And therefore, no one was beaten. No one. You could drive as much pain, give me as much press-ups and sit-ups and runs as much as you wanted to. I'm not going anywhere. There's no way I'm ringing that bell. And day after day, I watched grown men break 
and ring the bell. And I'm still stood there thinking. And every day I grew. And as horrible as that sounds, every time someone rang that bell, I grew as a person. And I was just standing there thinking, I've survived another day here. These are not getting rid of me. And they probably tried so hard because I, I, I can imagine I was awful. Just a gobshite who felt the world owed me something. And But every day I turned up and every day I just did my absolute best to ensure I got over the line and, and somehow I did. And I provided. Uh, unfortunately, my mum passed away um, a few years later. But my little sister now has got a master's degree um, and she's doing okay. So we did okay. There's something that has been echoed a lot on here. The trauma, if it's addressed, can become a superpower. And I think if it's left unaddressed, you know, we go into a profession where now we're serving, now we have purpose, now we have a tribe around us, you know, and then eventually there's a certain point where that foundation starts to crumble if you haven't addressed it. But if we are able to bring on our young men and women that enter the military, the fire service, whatever it is, and make mental health such an important conversation that we address that at the front door as well. So as many times as you're doing PT, maybe you're going through counseling sessions too, and maybe you haven't got much to offload, maybe you've got a shitload to offload. But you now, that post-traumatic growth, that turning that trauma into something that is a strength for you, that gets you through you know, power selection or whatever it is, I think that's the conversation we need to hear because then that gives people hope. Like, I'm not going to live with PTSD. I'm going to turn turn it from PTSD to PTSG, I guess it is, or post-traumatic, but PTG. So hearing all these people who use that as their driving force, and Sean Strickland's a perfect example. He just won the, the championship in the UFC, and I saw a little clip, and he said something like, thanks, Dad, for such a fucked-up childhood. <laughs> you know, this is why I'm here. So it's kind of it's good to hear because I think so many of us in uniform – when you look back, we have got trauma. That's what drove us to this life of service. 100%. I, I couldn't agree more. I um, I became privy to Sean many years ago because he fought one of my friends who I went through training with um, in the UFC, Jack Marshman. So I went through depot with Jack Marshman. And Jack and Sean got ch- chatting in the round. But Sean was actually chatting to Jack throughout the whole fight. It was just There was another level. And... And there's so much similarities there that Sean could probably have joined, done what we did, because he's got that same thing. That's why that's how he became friends. And you look across the board now, and pretty much, I would, in fact, you know what? There's something I've never looked into, but if you were to look at the nine originals that passed when I did, I would put my house on it, the 90% of them, probably have a similar upbringing. Absolutely. Well, you talked about not doing the physical preparation. What were you playing sports-wise when you were a kid? So I played at a decent level of football. Um, just when my dad left, I was on at Liverpool Academy and I got dropped from there. I wasn't good enough to go and get housed. Um, so when you when you can't get to like train or something, so if I was from like London or from Wales and he was good enough, they'd move your family to basically in and around the area to use country. I wasn't good enough for that, but I played at that level. So when I couldn't get to the game, that was the end of that. We then moved to St. Helens where they do not play football. All they do is play rugby. Um, we was a feeder club for Saints. It was like world champions at the time. So I never kicked the ball again. And that hurt. But ultimately it was, I didn't really do anything. I was just a lot of genetics, naturally okay. Um, still, I doubt I was good enough. But my why was so strong that they could not break me. And as long as I didn't get injured, and I didn't because I was so young and subtle that I wouldn't get injured. You know, if I was to probably try that now as a 25-year-old or 
you know, even as a 21, 22 year old, then I probably would have broke because I didn't have a foundation of strength to help me to survive. That's what I try and preach now that Parareg Depot is a survival place. You obviously have to showcase that you have a level above from a performance outcome, from a performance spectrum, but ultimately those who survive win. So there was another study that done that where pretty much the top third who go there fail because they've never felt pain. They don't understand what that feels like. So as soon as something gets a little bit tough, they go, don't like that. Do not like that. So those who test and win, like the first stuff, I can remember all of them. Think well, I can remember when I first turned up my first, first few days, getting tested and being way back in the pack thinking, ah, oh, I'm fucked. I'm done. <laughs> there's no way in this world I, I can keep up with that. You know, there's people, you know, lapping me and I'm thinking, how do I, how do I possibly keep up? Maybe I should have trained for this. And um, all of them, every single one of them dropped by the wayside time and time again. Those bell, that bell was getting ringing. You're, so what happens when we went through depot is the bell would get rung. And if we was all in the block, you would all run out into the corridor and it would be almost like a parade. And the person would have to be stood there outside the office and everyone would be stood down the corridor. All the, all the full screws, the, like the corporals, the staff would come out and they'd say, right, what's going on? They go, I'm such and such, such and such. Um, I've run the bell, I'd like to leave. And it was, okay, turn around there, go pack your kit, come back. We'd all have to stay in the corridor and they'd walk back past us with the kit. And every time they'd be walking past me and I'd just be thinking, wow, how are you going? Like, you're like the fittest here. Where are you going? Every single time. And you don't get the time to question them because they're gone. So the idea behind it is that they don't, they, they don't infect, they, what they say is they don't infect anyone. So they get rid of them straight away. Because you can become very negative very quickly and you can pass that around and become, you know, as, as I'm sure negativity spreads. So what they do is they get rid of them straight away. So they're, they're, they're no way near you so that they can't possibly go off. They can, can't tell you the better side. They can't say, oh, I'm leaving because this is this is shit or this is I'm going to do this. They shouldn't have done that, whatever. They get rid of them straight away. So you're there, you go back straight into practice. They get shipped out. They go to another block. We crack on with the day. I wrote a chapter in my book um, about a similar thing in the fire service. And it was once you finish the fire academy, you can go to some organizations that you test and they'll send you to... Yeah, your applications to a bunch of fire departments because here it's not national every city and county is its own entity and at the beginning there was these two like bright orange bodybuilders just strutting around with the cut-off shirt and everything and and the way they were walking around i'm like wow they must be the gods of firefighting and i was a brand new dude i had no fucking idea i didn't even have any family in the fire service and so you know, we all start and it's just a simple thing if you ever seen the combat challenge it was kind of like that just you know you're running up the stairs with the hose and everything they only made it three stories up with a dry length of hose on their shoulder when they tapped out. And it literally one dude did, tapped out, and then the other dude did. And it was just that realization, like you said, when you grew up, and I'm 49 now, so you grew up with the you know, the Rambos and the Terminators and all that stuff, we were told that's what a man is. That's the elite performance. And then you realize, no, that stringy-looking kid over there has a mind of steel, and he just smokes it, you know, and there's these two orange cockerels fucking fall apart in the first you know two minutes so it was it was interesting and then you talk to these you know sas and seals and everything else it's not the six foot four 250 pound dude that makes it through every time it you know there are obviously shapes and sizes in in every military unit but it's it's between the ears ultimately obviously preparation and we'll get into as part of it 
but that mindset and if your kind of hierarchy of needs focuses in like yours did like i need to eat i need to put a roof over my head you know especially if you've come from a place that was you know kind of deprived of that security it's such a motivator that can absolutely you know supersede your physicality yeah and i i've got a theory on it there but by it's there's a mixture of psycho psychology and physiology whereby i believe that psychology gets you started your why physiology keeps you in there and it will take psychology to get yourself over the line when shit gets tough and we now need to start relying upon willpower that's what's going to pull you over the line but the biggest portion of that for anything that's got some sort of arduous element to it are you going through parachute regimen depot will rely upon your physical robustness to get through it so and the way that i do it now the way i coach people now and the way i talk about it in my book is we push willpower as far right as we possibly can so the harder we prepare the better we prepare the less we need to rely upon that mindset now we are going to rely on upon it at some point because stuff's going to get really really hard and it's going to revert you back straight away to that why why are you here why do you want this now my physical presence probably in Parareg Depot ran out earlier than others. So I was going to rely upon psychology straight away. And that willpower would then come full circle. First question, why am I here? And the moment I can answer that to myself, which the reason was my little sister, I've got an, I'm going to go to another level now. I've got another level in there. I've got another gear. That's not to say that that can't run out because your mind is in fact a muscle and it will run out the same as the way your bicep will if you just keep bicep curling. But I just got over the line. I just had enough in there that would get me over the line. And I did. And I struggled all the time. And we could probably laugh about it now because where I went to after that and the heights I got to after that, it's a far cry from who I was in Depot. But I did what I had to do with the tools that I had to survive. And that's what matters. Going back to the timeline for a second, you went into the military because of necessity, because of you know your love of your family and being a provider. Prior to that, you, you'd gone to the Liverpool Academy, so obviously football was in your mind at one point. Were there any other careers that you had in your mind prior to the military? Nothing. I knew in year 10, so um, I don't know what that equivalent is over with over there in the States, but I was about 15 years old. I couldn't join until I was 16. That's what I was doing. Um, so education became a back burner. Um, I was doing odd jobs, legal and illegal, and I was doing whatever I possibly could at that age to pull money in. But I realized I needed sustainability of money. I needed it permanently income. And the army was the was the thing that stood out straight away for me. And so that's what I was going to do. And I knew that all the way. And I remember back with teachers and, you know, I, I called him out a few years back. Um, Mr. Banks, his name was, and I'll never forget him, um, telling me that I'll never amount to nothing um, or I'd never amount to anything, should I say. He was an English teacher as well, so he pulled me straight up on that. And um, and yeah, and that stuck with me. And I still think about it to this day. I don't regret it. I don't, I'm not, I'm not um upset about what he said. I probably agree with him. If I look at myself back then, I probably agree. Um, but he gave me a little push. Yeah, it's funny. Like there's there's people that that lifted me up when I was in school, um, yeah, my PE teacher, for example. But there's one guy, Mr. Blazard, that was just, it wasn't negative psychology. It wasn't reverse psychology. It was just, he was a dick. It's just <laughs> that's how it was, a terrible teacher. But it's amazing how 
you do use that and you're like, I'll show you, you know, and, and again, some people may, may be planning it. Some people don't, but I'm part of a Facebook group with my old school and, you know, you put that name in all of a sudden everyone else is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you realize that, you know, you can either elevate as a, a mentor or a teacher or you can discourage because you used it as fuel. How many other kids listened to that and were like, yeah, you're right and didn't. Yeah, hundred percent. And how many fell off the bandwagon just upon that that knowledge? That knowledge alone has basically pushed them. So, you know, I mean, if we could stick a number on it, it'd be great. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but every step of the way, even when leaving the military, you know, you've got that such a huge safety blanket. Why are you doing it? What are you going to possibly do? And in my head, at every single step of the way, and I've got where I am every single step of the way through mishap and misfortune by everything outside of my control, but I've made it work every single step. And I've thrived in those moments of where I might just not make it. And maybe that was because when I left school, that's what I went straight into. That's my only notion of adulthood is I might not make it. That's all I've ever lived in. I've lived in that void of where there's a huge chance you're not going to be successful here. I right, will fucking watch this. And I've sat there my whole life. So those, that same, same notion as what I utilize in depot, those people who have what we call, we stayed in the locker. We have struggled. We've in, in a, in a physiological sense, we call it the accommodation principle. And that's what, that's what we just, that's what we call it from, from a physical standpoint, but the same will be the, the same could probably be said in psychology, whereby you will accommodate the load. The same as what you do now when you walk up the stairs, your body just does it because you've done it that many times you accommodate it. Like a mother, when she carries a child around on her hips, you accommodate that load. When I grab my baby, I'm thinking, I'm stronger than my missus here, and he's heavy. And I'm like, you know, and she's just cutting around all day if she wants. She can clean, you know, everything. But she's accommodate the load. You can do that with your mind as well. But you have to put yourself through stress. Stress is really, really positive and really powerful. But if you put yourself in there enough times and you allow adaptations to, to take place, i.e. you rest, because you only adapt from the stress that you can recover from, you will accommodate the load and you'll get better in those void. And I've spent my whole life in there where I might just not make it. And that fear of failure is what's pushed me forward. And I love it. And then I, now I think I just delivered a presentation at the International Fitness Summit as a headliner. And, and I sat there and then loads of people were asking me, am I nervous? And those people who were just speaking for the first time, and this is the biggest stage I've ever spoke spoke on I said you know what if you're in this room and you're on that stage and you're talking in front of these people and you're nervous good you're in the right place you've done something really good to be here thrive on it we are exactly where we should be let's go and that's where I'm at now and there's you know I like to say to people as well you're not stressed you're not nervous about the situation like no one's trying to shoot me not one person's tried to shoot me this weekend I'm fucking chilled I'm massively chilled. You know, this is easy work for me. Not to say that I wasn't nervous because I was, but um, living it, you know, and I think that's really helped me out, the fact that I have always been under stress. Well, speaking of that, when did you enter the military? What year? Yeah. 2000, November 2007. Okay. So what was your 9-11 experience, if anything? I know it's a little different in the UK versus America now, but... um. What was that, if you remember it? And then talk to me about the environment that you found yourself in when you actually got to the combat side of the British military. 
So I was only 10, I believe, when 9-11 happened. And I can remember it vividly. I was on my way to school. I just I just moved to St. Helens. I'd literally just moved to St. Helens. And I can remember making a friend. Um, I think it was in my final year of school. And I knocked on his house. And as we was on our way to school, he said, um, come in. And I just remember seeing the telly whilst he was, and he was completely naive to the situation. He was going and getting his stuff. And I just remember seeing on the telly this thing unfold. And his mum just like gasping and being like, oh my God. And I was just thinking, I don't really understand what's happening. Um, that was my first view on it. Um, probably didn't quite understand the severity of it back then and how that would go on to shape the rest of my life. But it's played a huge part in my life, you know, as, as, it's absolutely massive and it's it's restructured the world, I can imagine. You know, it's it's every single person one way or another post-day who lived through it, who lived after it, was born after it, has been shaped by it in one way or another. And I don't think we quite realised the severity of it back then. And obviously then I went to war um, as a soldier. So it shaped me incredibly. So a question I want to ask you, I ask everyone that was in combat, and the reason I do is maybe not so much in the UK. I'm not really aware of you know the, the news back home anymore. I've been gone for 22 years now. But certainly in America here, they get a very polarized view of war. It's either very, very pro-war, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out, very anti-war, the whole baby killer thing. But in the middle are basically children that we send off to war a lot of times. And I think it's important to hear the perspective of the soldier, the Marine, you know, the airman, etc. So two-part question. Firstly, regardless of the politics that sent you to where you were deployed, was there a moment where you realized, okay, there is, there is a job to be done, there were some atrocities or whatever was going on, that it solidified your position where you were actually standing? So remember why I joined and it wasn't to do with anything like that. I didn't join as you, you know, hoorah and all that type of stuff were in it. Uh, that wasn't me. I didn't join for the queen. I didn't join for anything like that. I joined because it was the quickest work I put food on the table. Now I became very patriotic whilst I was in, um, but ultimately I went to these places to do a job and I did exactly what was asked of me at every step of the way to the best of my ability. And and that's all I had to do because that's what fueled me. That's what kept me. That's what kept the food on the table. This was all I knew, and therefore I did exactly what I had to do. I don't know if that's the most political answer you've had, but <laughs> no. I mean, every answer is just it. Everyone's unique perspective. So flipping that on its head for a second, another thing that we don't hear about on the news usually is the kindness and compassion that I hear so many times in stories from either the soldiers themselves or the people that they were there to protect. Because again, there's a lot of tarring with the same brush. Oh, we're at war with Afghanistan. Well, we're not. We were at war with extremists within Afghanistan mm -hmm. who are yes. terrorizing their own people. So what about kindness and compassion that you witnessed? Amazing. The Afghan people are unbelievable, you know, and we, you know, we, we help people make schools for, young girls and the Afghan people themselves are lovely. The place is unbelievable. It's so lovely. And you know what? And even flipping it, and I don't even know how this will go, but I had respect for the fighters as well because they believed in something just the same as what we did. And, and I think that's, you often find that. And I think you find that with those who have fought, those 
people who have been in the octagon have respect for their opposition, whether they like them or hate them. By the end of it, they have respect for them. In it, they have respect for them. Because they're the ones stood up and they're standing up because they believe in something. So I still respected them and what they did. But like I said, I went there and I did a job to the best of my ability. And, um, and yeah, and that's what I did. Well, that's something I've heard from a lot of people. Obviously, there is, you know, within every military group, there are some complete sociopaths. And we're aware of that, obviously. I mean, you know, if you're throwing Jewish people into an oven, you're not just serving anymore. You've crossed that line. But I always say, you know, how do we go from that toddler that was just laughing and, you know, chasing a ball and playing with whoever, you know, regardless of skin color or religion, we're just kids and we see the, the goodness in life to the point of being divided and labeled and pit against each other. And this is what's so sad. And I think we saw it on, you know, World War One. obviously is a classic example with the truce where they play football. Like these are men, neither of whom really have a dog in the fight. They were just told to go and fight the opposition, the Hun, you know, whoever it was. But when you take a step back, I mean, ultimately we're all the same kind of people. And what's sad is over and over again, you know, a tyrannical few managed to create so many problems for the masses in their country. Do you know what I would do you know what I would love to do? I would love to walk the paths I've walked in battle with the enemy. And I'd like to get their point of view. And more so from a from a from a tactical point of view, what was you thinking there? When we did that, why did you do that? And I would I would genuinely and I've always thought this. Because that person opposite probably thinks the same way I do. They probably talk about girls the same way we do. And, you know, they talk about the football and they do all that type of shit. But I'd like to see their point of view and their opinion. And I'd love to walk the paths that we walked. One day I would love to do it, you know. And because, you know, those 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 ground shaped us in, in some incredible ways. You know, I grew up very, very quickly out there. And we did some incredible things as human beings, some incredible feats, some incredible acts of man happened out there. I've seen some atrocious things. I've seen some wonderful things. But loads of them were shaped in that country. And I would genuinely like to walk back. I'd like to walk the paths. And um, and I would like to see the enemy's point of view, genuinely. One of my guests, Rich Rice, was one of the very first Delta operators in Vietnam. And it actually is... Initial one was Vietnam. His last service was Mogadishu. So you talk about a story career. But he got to actually go back to Vietnam, ironically, through Gorak. So it was purely just, to, I think they were making boots and they were searching out certain materials for it. But they got to sit down with what was used, what used to be a Viet Cong, I believe, and probably the people that were hunting him or vice versa at the time. And they sat down as two men and they shared stories. And it's, it's, it's I think... As we sit here recording this on 9-12, yesterday I saw so many videos. I mean, being a firefighter, we lost 343 firefighters in New York. Um, the the Instagram wall is just nothing but, you know, smoking towers and voicemails from all the passengers on the plane, and, and it's all sadness. But 9-12 today was when the, the country came together, and this is the part I think we need to remember. And as we seem to be divided more again, I mean, especially the last, you know, three years, there was a lot of division. I think to learn from these wars that you served in, that so many people in the past have, we have to realize that when we work together, when we pull people together, we're less likely to be 
sent into another war and less likely to create another war. So learning, as you said, getting these combatants together, if if you could create a scenario where they would and learn from each other and realize, I bet if you look up the chain, the commonalities that, that led to the beginning of the insurgency or you know whatever element that created war, you'd probably line them up and go, well, shit, that happened with us in this war and this war and this war. And then you realize, okay, there's a pattern. History is trying to teach something. If we just mindlessly replay the event of the day we're missing the lessons we have to look at our quote-unquote leaders or lack thereof recently and be like all right let's put some good good people in these positions that pull our country together so we're less likely to send our children to war again good people don't make money though <laughs> yep that, well the thing is i think that that unity is a, is a scary thing to a politician as well one of my guests recently said or imagine you're in medieval england and you're looking over the castle war war the lord and the lady and you've created separation in the village and now they're arguing with each other he goes where are the villagers not looking the castle and i'm like that is that is beautiful that is it you know that's all of us down there but when we're fighting amongst each other we're not looking at the house of parliament the white house whatever it is and going Wait, why are they there again? So, I mean, it's a very simple analogy, but it's true. If our system mm-hmm. doesn't allow us to good, put good leaders in in positions of power, then we need to change the system. It's that simple. Change the system, yeah. So, all right, I digress. <laughs> so, at what point did you get into focusing on the tactical athlete side, the, the human performance side when you were within the military? So I spent a bit of time in the parachute regiment, then moved on to special forces support group, and then ultimately went up and took up a position as a physical training instructor at parachute regiment depot. So coming full circle where I went through, where nine of us survived, I then went back as an instructor, as a physical training instructor there. And as you can imagine, everyone in the paras is pretty fit. So for me to get a PTI course and then go and be an instructor back at the school, the chances were very, very slim, but I got it. And that, again, what shaped me. So when I went there, I thought all I wanted to be at this point was a soldier. So I had no intention of becoming a physical training instructor. Um, and I thought to myself, rather than sit still, I'm going to get myself on a degree. So I went and signed up to a university, didn't tell them I was in the army, didn't tell the army I was in uni, and took up a full-time degree. I do not recommend that to anybody. I had to, I had to get rid of every external influence I had. All I had in my room was a bed, a table, a laptop, and a series of books. And I would study every single day and implement theory into practice the subsequent day, every day for two years, teaching between 50 and 200 people every single day on group sessions. And so my experience and my knowledge was going through the absolute roof. Now, what I realized when I was at Depot was that we was doing the same shit that they put us through. There was no foundation. People was getting spat out very, very quickly. Fit people, those top third I mentioned already, getting injured or just leaving because it was too hard for them. And I came up with the notion of tactical athlete. I wanted to treat these young potential soldiers, potential paratroopers as athletes. I wanted them to believe that they was an athlete because what that would ultimately do was change the way they fought. And listen, I went on to create some incredible programs. But as I mentioned this weekend at the International Fitness Summit, it was those three words that changed the game. The tactical athlete. Because you know what happens when you call someone an athlete? They start acting like an athlete. They start believing and eating and sleeping, hydrating like an athlete. Going out on the piss on the weekends, would an athlete do that? 
the lovely looking food in the scoff farms. Would an athlete eat that? And all of a sudden, before I've even done anything, the game's getting changed because people are starting to believe in themselves and start believing. And I mentioned this to other people when I, you, when I do like mentorships for um, personal trainers and coaches. If you call someone a client, they act like a client. If you call them an athlete, and that doesn't matter whether they just want to get off the couch for the first time ever, or they want to run the first 10K, or they want to do an Ironman, or they want to join special forces. If you call them an athlete, they will act like an athlete. So before you even write a word on a program, they're already thinking and believe like an athlete. So the psychology has started. Then we fill it with physiology. Then we finish with psychology. But we start with why and we start, you are now an athlete. And it completely changed the vision on what we was doing. Because of my degree, I started realizing I was actually pretty good at this shit. And I then got selected to be a Royal Army Physical Training Corps instructor when I was about 24. And uh, so I got promoted to sergeant. And then I then became one of six known as the Brains who traveled around the country and was basically in charge of upskilling physical development for 80,000 people. And that's what I did. I kept running and kept pushing. And all I wanted to do was ensure that I was the best. I went into competition. You mentioned perpetual growth before, and I utilize that as what I do with athletes now. But I had that in my mind as well. I had to be a better coach than who I was yesterday. And I realized very early, which most coaches and PTs get confused with, and it's often where they fall down. I realized that no one gave a shit what I could do as, as, as a coach physically. I've done that. I've proved it. Became a British paratrooper at 17, special forces support group, and I was selected for the Royal Army Physical Training Corps. I don't have to prove my fitness to anyone anymore. They don't care what I can do. They care how much I care. And that's what I realized very early and set me apart from everyone else is that I ran and ran to ensure that my athletes were getting the best possible service at every step of the way. Don't get me wrong. I still kept myself healthy. I still keep myself fit. I still train every single day. But I don't showcase it on Instagram. No one needs to see it. So I utilize what's known as the secret athlete. I used to love nothing more than turn up to these courses and these tests and fucking destroying absolutely everyone on there. And they're thinking, he doesn't even train. Little do they know I'm up before them. I've studied before them. I've trained before them. And then we go to breakfast and then we start the day. And you've got no idea what I've done. And I used to think it's so powerful. And I utilize that now with every single athlete. Whenever they come on board with me, and it's terrible for marketing, by the way, but really, really powerful for winning. I say from this day forward, you are the secret athlete. So I've gone one step further from the tactical athlete. You don't tell anyone you work with us. We don't tell anyone we work with you. We train in science, we win in science, but we fucking win and we shock people. And I utilize that now and it's became very, really powerful. But that was the idea is I ran with the tactical athlete notion and I just kept running and running and running. And it was the idea that we could be absolutely ready for anything. I then went and redesigned pretty much every training program in the army. Um, just with that notion that we must be able to call upon any component of fitness at any given time, utilizing my experience of what I've done before. And in order to do that, we have to train like athletes because it's not a loss of points or a loss of pride in a sporting context. If we get this shit wrong, someone dies. And I put my name to that. See, I agree completely. I've even had, um, ironically, a, a well-known trainer in the tactical athlete space who went out and was like, I don't think first responders are tactical athletes. And I'm like, well, I think you're full of shit because you're like you said, if you're playing the game of football or cricket or whatever it is, 
you know, you're asked to do X amount, but lives aren't at stake. You know, if you can't finish the 90 minutes, you just, you know, fall over, grab your leg, and someone will bring another football player on. If you're halfway up Grenfell Tower, you don't get to do that. There's people waiting for you at the top. So I love that that phrase as well, because sadly, I don't know, I'm going to ask about this in the British Army, but in the first responder professions in the US, we hardly any of them have an actual physical standard that we have to meet every year. So the fitness has been opposed, I mean, genuinely opposed by you know unions or administrations or whatever, whoever the, the kind of demon is in that particular organization. But when you frame it as tactical athlete, like you said, it does shift everything because one day you will be on Grenfell or you'll be in the World Trade Center, or you'll be at the Vegas shooting, or the London bombing, or you know whatever, and you are going to go from zero to an expectation of a special forces level strength and conditioning. And if you haven't taken that seriously through your whole career, you're going to be the one seen to you know to tap out. You you will tap out because you won't have a choice because you don't have that physical resilience, you don't have that mental toughness. And now people are going to die, or you're going to die, your partner's going to die. Because you allow that complacency to infiltrate your career. Oh, 100%. And it's the same over here. No, I was in a fortunate position where I got that over the line through in the army and it was hard. You try and tell someone to do less work and do more strength conditioning and not just run, 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 but it's very volume heavy. Very, very difficult for me to go and do that because the famous saying in the military is we've, but we've always done it this way. And now we've got some gobshite 24-year-old who's got a degree behind him telling us this is a better way to do it. And I was like, um, but anyway, results spark confidence. And I tripled the parachute regiment pass rate and went on to do very similar things across the military. But I then uh, branched out. And now I coach firefighters, police officers, and first responders all over the world. And I delivered a presentation not so long ago on tactical athlete development to pretty much every commander in the police force over here in the UK. My closing line was very simple. I provide them all the rationale about why they are athletes and why we must train them accordingly for anything. But I finished up with the following, that if you are going to ask people to put their lives on the line, the absolute bare minimum you can give them is health. Not even talking about performance right now. Just health. It's the bare minimum. It's the minimum we can give these guys. Lo and behold, it was a no. It was it was a hard no. Um, budget and all that type of stuff. We're going in a different direction and whatever. And it, you know, and it's I do it now for free. Um, because I'm in a fortunate position to do so, but um it hurts me because I do believe that there are people out there doing these incredibly wonderful things for us. And we owe them. We owe them health. We owe them performance. We owe them the right tools to go and do the job that we ask of them as the public. And if that's a police officer getting out of his vehicle and sprinting after an assailant, we owe that ability to, in order to do that. If that's someone climbing Grenfell or someone going through the bottom doors on 9-11, the bare minimum we can give that man and woman is health. The bare minimum. And I think as an organization, you should be ashamed of yourself if you ain't going to do that. Well, you're preaching to the choir. And here's, here's an irony. Seven years of listening to people, I mean, not just firefighters, but you know, strength and conditioning gurus and nutritionists and you name it, psychologists, psychiatrists, is <laughs> no matter who I talk to, the same resounding fact comes out. When you don't take the health of your people seriously... Then, you know, Mike comes into the, hey, I've got this this program, it can help. 
everyone looks at it a budget budget year. Well, you know, yeah, but Mike's program is this amount, and you know, I don't want to spend more money because we only have this budget. The reality is the money that is lost when your men and women's health starts diminishing 10, 15, 20 years into their career, and now you're paying for all the you know the health service, especially in the US, we don't have national health, which I think is amazing, by the way. So now all the expenses of these, these people that are hurt and sick, and then the overtime covering them, and then the medical retirements and the line of duty deaths and the lawsuits because we made mistakes or we couldn't get to that person, they're bleeding money. And this is what's so frustrating with this conversation is the money is there. You just need courageous leadership to say, I'm going to invest in my firefighters or police officers today, not firstly because I'm a human being and I care and I want these men and women that are going to leave their families and serve strangers to be taken care of. But even if you don't care about that, financially, 10 years down the line, you guys will thank me. We'll be able to put a fourth person back on a fire engine, we'll be able to reopen stations, we're going to have such a better service and there'll be money for, you know, all these other programs too. And this is what the insanity is that by breaking human beings, you are also wasting a huge amount of money for a city or a county. Yeah, and um, so the US military, as an example, I think the MSKI bill per annum is 1.6 billion, which is outrageous. So, and it won't be that much in the fire service and the police service, but it'll be high. Now, if someone comes along and you've got to put a business head on here at the top and think, right, as an investment, let's say the MSKI bill is a thousand pounds for the police. And I come in and say, well, my program's 500 pounds, but I'm going to wipe your MSKI bill off the, off the face of the earth. You are going to make 500 pounds and you're going to get very, very fit uh, police officers. The same happened when we changed the game in the military. I re redesigned what's known as the common military syllabus. And every defense attache in the world came over to see me to understand what I'd done for these new training programs. And I stood in front of all these defense attaches and I basically explained that what we've done here is incredible. Me and my team have created this absolute monster of a program. We've tripled some of the most arduous courses in the world overnight. We had an 88.5% pass rate on the physical testing for British Paratroopers P Company, which probably hasn't been done since World War II. Probably not even then. And I said, but that's not the best thing. The fruits of our labor are the fact that these young men will never get injured. A very small chance. There may be trauma injuries, but they twist an ankle off a six-foot wall. Or, but repetitive strain injuries, your MSKIs, your avoidable injuries are gone because we gave them a foundation of strength for them to develop on for the rest of their careers. So the bill is going to get reduced. You know, and obviously I was free because I was a serving soldier, well, free from a business point of view, but they were that, that was the beauty of this whole game is that what you do will inherently affect what happens later. And if you do it right now, you will positively affect it later. But if you keep fucking ignoring it, like you're doing in the police and fire service, it's going to hunt you and hurt you later on. That's the key. Do it now, get it nipped. Give your men and women health. And if you don't, you're in big trouble. And that's where we are right now. They're in big, big trouble where you've got over in Britain, overweight, underperforming police officers and firefighters and soldiers who can't do the job and are just a sap on the budget. We can help them. I know guys who can help them right now, but it takes a merit of individualization in order to go and do it. I don't mean throwing some shitty program at the wall and saying everyone should abide by that. It's one of the things that changed in the army. 
everybody in the army had to fit in line with what the army's program was. And I said, that's the wrong way to do it. It's not how we do it at football clubs. So here's what we do. Why doesn't the army fit into everyone's individual needs? And he's like, well, that takes too much time. And I said, well, let me do it. And that's what I did. I individualized every single training to ensure that the army fit into the individual. The aim may remain the same, whatever the commander's intent looks like, but how we get there will and always will be different because we are unique. Every person that comes in front of me is inherently different to the next. Biologically, physiologically, psychologically, whatever you want to do, they're all different. So train them accordingly. So we talked about, you know, the the um, the number of candidates that you lost in the way that it, it was going. Like you said, some of them probably needed to be gone, should never have been in that particular mm -hmm. profession. Yeah. But I have this even with the psychological testing in the fire service. It's when you speak to all these mental health professionals, they're like, yeah, that doesn't <laughs> there's no no way in hell this can tell you this person's going to be a good candidate or a bad candidate for the fire service this was never meant to be used for this way and the same with the polygraph it's all smoke and mirrors to get you to confess to something so you know with that i've talked about well let's take that money and put in counseling at the front door like we talked about before you know you've had this kind of childhood let's address that alongside your pt but um uh, where was I going with this? Oh my goodness, there was a there was a point to this. Um, oh yeah, so so the loss of the candidates. Um, when you do background checks too, well, Mike, you know, was a shoplifter for you know one incident when he was fourteen. Sorry, you can't be a firefighter now. Well, again, he'd probably be a great firefighter. That was one little you know blip that needs to be navigated. But by expecting choir boys to show up to the fire service or the military again, I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot. But to lose candidates that were good because of a flawed selection system is also, you know, is is a you're missing a lot of good soldiers, basically. So principles wise, what were you seeing and what did you change to make sure you didn't lose some of these good athletes that just couldn't fit in that box that was created? Individualized training to suit every individual. And the only way that you can do that is by going through uh my tri-phase approach that I do now. I test the athlete, I train them, and then we compete to showcase what we've done over that period of time. So your competition, whatever that looks like, for us, the physical testing was around about 20, 21 weeks into training. So week one, it was for me to, and that's a long goal period of time, by the way, get to know them, both physically and who they are as a person for the athlete profile. It's what I do, I do the same stuff now, exactly the same stuff now, with some of the most elite athletes around the world. I understand who they are and what they're capable of. I then write a program based upon their physical capabilities with the timeline you've got to play with, with whatever aim that looks like at the end. That's the only way to do it. By individualizing training, by getting to know them personally and writing a program that suits them. Some people work better than others on certain things and tasks. So we have to run down that way. you know. And then you can look at... Um, Physical disadvantages and advantages that someone's extremely strong, but they're shit at running. But we know there's a running test. So have a guess what we need to work on. We need to maintain what we've got over here in strength, but we've got to work on your running. Otherwise, no one's going to care about how strong you are because you're never going to be able to showcase it because you're going to fail the running test. So we've got to get that nipped. We have to get that nipped really, really early. And that's what we do. We understand the parameters of the athlete and the parameters of the training and we make a program to fit and to suit them. That's not to take away team training because everyone still needs to train together. Team cohesion, psychosocial adaptations are still key because at the end of the day, we're going to carry the logs and the stretches together. 
nearly when David Goggins on you. But ultimately, individualization is paramount for success. Because what we do when we get on those logs and stretches, yes, we're doing it as a team, but your individual individual physiology is going to carry you through. When we get to that end point, we start with psychology. The center is about physiology. The ending is about psychology. When we get to that end and you realize it's not just you and the load still has to go from A to B when we're talking about logs and stretches, you're not going to drop it because that's still going to go with or without you. You have two options. Number one, you let it go. It's the easy option. It's the easy road to take. The only benefit of that is that it doesn't hurt anymore. But option number two is you look to that left and right and you see that other man or woman who sat on there and they're in the same pain as you and you fucking hold on for them, not just for you anymore. And lo and behold, it went through the roof. And do you want to know how I did that with the psychosocial? I got all the recruits to go out for pizza with each other every single Tuesday night. Easy. All I did was make them sit with each other and get to know each other. So the first time that they got to know each other wasn't when they was on an individual bias, when they was left about they didn't even care that he would carry the load. They knew each other personally. So now when they looked over and thought, shit, this is heavy, which it is, it ain't just about you anymore. You are not special. Look left and right and don't just do it for you. Do it for that man over there. And that's how we changed it. Well, that shared suffering, I've seen pulls men and women together so tightly so in i worked for four fire services in uh, the u.s in the end the very first one we were hired as non-cert meaning just you know boots off, off the street but about half of the class had all our certifications because in, in america you go to fire school you go to emt school so while they sent the the civvies through we were all just getting beasted every day but the cohesion that was formed in that group and then the next fire department in California I worked for, those relationships lasted a lifetime. So talk to me about that. When when standards are lowered and people are asked to suffer less, what have you seen as far as that implication on that tribal performance? Well, you're a product of your environment. And if you, so, and the, the military is a classic example. Um, I, don't, I can't remember which unit it was, but they have in the US as well, but they've lowered standards. So the standard coming through the door is lower, genuinely. And across the board, as an average, because you don't have to work as hard. The parachute regiment still has a waiting list of a couple of years because the standards haven't dropped. And therefore, if you tell someone, go and join that unit over there, go and, go and see what it's like, you know, all you've got to do is turn up and we'll get given you very. Or you can wait in line for a year and a half and you earn every single thing. Even when you've passed as a paratrooper, you're still earning stuff. So even when I went to battalion, I thought, do you know what? I have made it. I am the, I'm a British paratrooper. I've got my belt. I've got my berry. Fucking hell. I'm the, I still had to go and earn the right for everything, whether that was a tattoo of the parachute regiment, whatever it looks like, my wearing my own kit, the gloves I wore, the bag I was allowed to wear. Everything was earned at every single step of the way. The type of tattoo you want is earned. How fucking far down your sideburns are, are earned. It's incredible. And, that creates a different person. A different person signs up for that. Or maybe even the same person is going to sign up for that unit, but they grow to meet the standard. The, you know, the notion of if you give yourself four weeks to clean your room or four minutes, you'll clean your room in four minutes. The same details apply. If you have to go to that next level to achieve something great, are you joining the Paris? You'll get to that level if you need to. If you're wise, strong enough, you'll get there. And that's what I believe. I believe you're a product of the environment. You lower the standards, you'll get a lower standard outcome. 
doesn't make it doesn't mean we're going to get better people through the door does it i don't understand the rationale behind it maintain the standard and if you can't get people to meet the standard then the training is wrong not the not the standard i agree a hundred percent and i've witnessed it like my uh, especially the second department I tested against a thousand recruits that were all certified, already gone to school for the EMS side, for the fire side. They had, you know, volunteer firefighting experience. They'd driven ambulances for a private company. I mean, their resume was stacked and there was a thousand of them. And we tested, I think there was 30 spots total between the two classes we got hired in. And I actually moved back east because I had a, a little boy. My, my ex wanted to be by her family. So it broke my heart, but I left this department. But again, we have a thing called CPAT. I wanted to make sure, even though I knew I was in great shape, that I would smash this physical test for this other department. So I went and did a practice test. And the guy was like, you leave in Anaheim? I've never met a person who's left Anaheim Fire Department. But they were also renowned for losing 25% of every class during the fire service is a huge amount through attrition. Like there's the bar, you either reach it or you don't. And they had people lining up, you know, like you said, just for a chance to test. The last place I worked for protected a theme park and they were known to be a complete joke, especially the, the orientation. You got hired, you went around the theme park, you rode rides, you filled in some paperwork and now you got your uniform. No attrition, you know, no uh, suffering whatsoever. And they could barely even find anyone, even though they actually paid better and had, you know, a few more days off. And so when I hear people say, oh, you know, we, we have to lower the standards because of the hiring crisis, I'm like, no, the fucking lowering of the standards is creating the hiring you know, crisis. The people that you want walking into an application process for a fire service or a police service are the ones that will fight tooth and nail to be in the best damn department they can be in, where the standards are high and it's grueling making it through it. But we have this kind of bullshit backwards 18 and a heartbeat mentality of like, well, if we just let everyone apply and the PT is really easy, then we'll have all the seats filled. A, no, you won't. And B, some of the people in those seats now are going to be a fucking liability in uniform. Mm -hmm. 100%. And how do we get out of that? You, you maintain the standard. And if you can't meet the standard, then the training is wrong. So affect the training, not the standard. The standard has been set because that's what history has told us that we need. So the parachute regimen have certain standards, like an example is everything in the, from a physiological side of life is associated to something, i.e. the 10-mile loaded march that we do, um, carrying 35 pounds minus weapons, smock, and helmet for 10 miles, 11-minute miles, so you get one hour 50 to do it, is the time that it took the boys when they parachuted in to get to the Arnhem Bridge back in World War II. The 20-miler that we do is to resemble what we did in the Falklands. And there are all of these things that have been put in place because history have told us we needed that at some point. So if we ever need that again, here I am, send me. And you're because I've shown case that I can do the standard. If we take those away, we don't get better paratroopers. We don't get more people through the door, we get worse. And the paras have been testament to that by maintaining the standard. And lo and behold, we've still got the highest, like, we still got the highest attrition rate, obviously, but loads of people are wanting to come through the door. I just had uh, Philip Neem on the show. He was um, uh, in charge. I forget the rank, so forgive me. I'm a, I'm a firefighter, not a soldier. But he was uh, in charge of two power D company on the Falklands. And I had another guy, John, um, God, what, 
Geddes is his author name. Um, hearing those two perspectives from a conflict when I was a little boy, you talk about your 9-11 experience. When I was, I think, eight was when the Falklands kicked off. And um, it's it's sadly, I think it's a conflict that's been lost because we've had so much time in the Middle East. But that group of men, you know, mainly men in that conflict, it's it's amazing to hear what they went through. But again, I almost can't help but feel like they were kind of the forgotten war generation as well, especially when it comes to the mental health side, because what they endured and with with such little equipment and like you said, so much suffering in that conflict. Um, you know, there's so many lessons and so much to glean from their stories. So it was it was amazing to yeah. hear these two men's perspective of a war when I was eight years old. Well, isn't it isn't it true that the Falklands is closer to World War II than what it is to us now? Isn't that a crazy, scary stat? Mind blowing. What what blew my mind when I turned, I think it was thirty-two, I think something like that. I realized that the World War II was my lifespan prior to my birth. Because when you're little, you think of World War II was like a thousand years ago, and then you get to thirty, whatever, and you're like, shit. From me being born to now, that's only how yeah, <laughs> how far ago it was that this atrocity was was occurring all over the world. So it's this is the problem when we bury down history and knock over statues and take books out of schools is that these horrors need to be front and center so we don't allow them to happen again. Scary thing, man. I think we're all getting old. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with the recruitment like you said i want to just hit one more topic and then go to go to suffering one thing that we're seeing here in the u.s as a population we are now 70 percent obese or overweight 70 percent of the country so obviously a lot of those are you know are younger people as well so the pool to choose from is starting to shrink a little bit I've always been, you know, uber proud of Britain, you know, where I'm from. And what breaks my heart is I've only come home like once a year. I'm seeing now more and more obesity happening in the UK as well. So through your eyes, is that a distorted lens or are you also encountering a smaller group of people that are physically able to be in, in uniform now? No, we, we will all, we will always follow the US. We always will. We're, so we did a... I was... Um, selling a piece of technology back to the US military a few years back and we realised that we're about five years behind from a physical standpoint um, from a technology standpoint as well and so we will always follow the US and but what that gives me straight away is yes people are getting fatter people are getting lazier because things are getting easier and things are getting more easier to get you know you get your food delivered to your house now and you can watch binge watch telly time after time and everything's just so easy but with that gives opportunity. There's a huge gap there that I'm thinking straight away. And it's not, you know, and there's think, well, I'm not letting my standards drop. I'm still very disciplined to ensure that I grow. So there's opportunity there. And people can, you know, piss the money up the wall by drinking, or they could eat their lives away through junk food. But ultimately, there's opportunity there for people who want to be healthy. And they want to grow in those moments and they can, they can go and do these jobs. I still believe that there are plenty of people out there to go and do go and do these jobs for, for those people. But you're absolutely right. I think the pool will get smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, what about mentorship? One thing I've seen is absolutely the antidote to 
apathy, lack of leadership, you know, people sitting in their houses talking about kids today while they roll their eyes, are people that walk out their front door and go and, you know, mentor the kids in their community, whether it's a football program, whether it's a military prep program. What have you seen through your eyes? Maybe it's through the military um, that is creating an environment that kids, especially, you know, kids like yourself that maybe are struggling, maybe don't have that father figure in their life at that moment, are being mentored by people like yourself so that we can prepare them to be soldiers, firefighters, police officers, etc. Um, well, you know, I, I'll tell you as a father, first and foremost, um, I've got a little girl and a little boy and my little girl loves ballet. And you better believe every Saturday I'm the fucking number one dad in the country at ballet. And um, she and I likes football. And I will run up and down that football pitch time after time after time because I am committed to her. I know what she ever she wants to do. I'm fully into do it. And I have to maintain a huge bout of health and fitness to in order to keep up with that because she has got some lungs on her. She's the fastest kid in the world. So, but that comes down to discipline. But then I'll take her to the play center and I will sit there and I will watch parents just play on the phones, let the kids go and play. And they're screaming and crying out for help. So it starts at home. So how can these people go out and mentor other kids? They ain't got the shit in order at home. I think it just go and have fun with your kids, go and do something. But it's, they're just so fucking lazy that they won't bother. And it winds me up and I think, you know, there's, there's, but then we go, so where do we branch out? We go out social media. And I'd love nothing more than if someone told me, um, I've heard it before, but I'd love it on a bigger scale where they're like, my son really looks up to you. If I had it IFS, someone said to me the other day, Someone asked the question, my son really looks up to you. Unfortunately, he can't join the army because he's got asthma. He wanted to know, can he ha- can, would you get a picture with me? And would you sign something? I was thinking, who, who am I? But I was thinking in that moment, like, first of all, I gave him a bit of advice. He can't control that. He's got asthma. There's nothing he can do. He needs to find another aim. And if he needs my help in that, he reaches out to me and I'll help him every step of the way and we'll go and win. But if I could do that on a bigger scale, fantastic. I'd love nothing more than people come up to me and say, you know, this is helping my kids or whatever it is. I would love to give back. I had this conversation earlier with uh, our clinical lead here at the Performance Centre about how we're going to give back when we get to a position to do so. But ultimately what that then gives is I am one of one billion people on social media. So the scary thing then accounts that these people are looking at everyone. They're not just looking at me. And it can so so often go wrong, as we see in social media, by people doing stupid workouts and giving stupid advice when it really shouldn't be. <laughs> There's no scientific backing in it whatsoever. So it becomes a very scary place that how do we distinguish who's right and who's wrong and what's good for these kids and what's not? And all we can do is be disciplined enough as a person, as a human, and provide our best, utmost knowledge to help these people develop, whether that's a kid or an adult, that's what I do for social media now, is I ensure that I try my hardest to help someone. And if that gets drowned out by the shite left and right of me, then that's to so be it. But I've still turned up to do my very best in that moment. And I think if everyone just tries that, we'll be all right, I think. But there's not much more we can do. There's very little we can do because social media is so big the amount of knowledge is so vast and scary and inefficient to go and get so people don't do it and what else can we possibly do well it's interesting when you said about my son can't do it because he's got asthma 
I was told as a young boy that I was colorblind and I could never be a firefighter, which is why I wasn't a British firefighter. And it took me moving to another country, having an aha moment going, wait a second, I can see colors. How do I get around this? I ended up challenging the test and getting hired as a firefighter. When you look now at asthma and you you think about, you know, even things like CBD kind of dampening the, the histamine response and the breath trainers that people are using and nasal breathing, it's sad because so many of us in these these professions are discouraged. Like, well, the doctor said I have this, so I could never do this. No, one person told you you couldn't do it. So find another person who's got around that because maybe, I mean, it might be that you have the kind of asthma that kills people that we run on that we have to give, you know, epi and intubate. That's probably not the asthmatic that we're talking about. But if you get a little wheezy sometimes, there's a good chance that you actually can figure out a way around it and be one of the best paratroopers there ever were. So, I mean, I understand, you know, stringent testing and everything, but I think one of the most discouraging things now these days is someone in a white coat with a stethoscope around their neck tells you you can't do something. I took it as gospel as a young kid. But I think the beautiful thing about all the information out there now is find someone who did and ask them how they did it. Yeah, 100%. And I, I massively agree with that. Um, and I think we can take a little piece of that for absolutely everything. You know, even over here, it's been women passing arduous courses, some of the people who've never done it before. I love nothing more than putting people in places that they shouldn't really be in. And there's something very powerful about that when utilising the secret athlete code of conduct and we just turn up and shock people. And I love that, but... I'm a very small fish in a very in a very big very big pond. So I want to talk about suffering for a second. Um, I've done CrossFit for God sixteen years now, and I've I've always brought in other modalities as well. So I love the strongman stuff. So Julian Pinot's strong fit. I use a lot of his principles. I got into the Wolf Brigade stuff now, so a lot more maces and, and kettlebells. But I've always wanted to make sure that at least once a week, once every two weeks, I'm going through one kind of pain cave red line workout because it was certainly when I was in uniform because when you get that Grenfell incident, when you get that, you know, wherever your Fallujah deployment, you don't want the last time that you really fucking suffered to have been six months, a year ago, you know, your time in Fire Academy 20 years ago. So talk to me about... um that frequency of, of, a, of a really hard workout when you're programming, whether it's the on-ramp into the military or maybe the special forces level? Um, again, going back to the original, learning the foundation of strength. I used to call it earn a right for a thrashing. I used to say to the, um, so people would turn up to Power Edge Depot thinking they're going to get thrashed from week one, day one. And you used to. And then I said, no, no, no. I'm going to make you earn every second of this. You are going to have to work really hard just so I can go and destroy you. And that's quite a scary thing that you've got to wrap. I've got to earn the right to go and get thrashed. But we grow in those sufferings. We grow as a human being. We grow as an athlete. We grow as a soldier. You grow. That's exactly where you want to be. In that locker is where you want to be. But remember, we only adapt from the stress that we can recover from. So the harder we work, the more stress we get, the harder we rest. And the more we have to allow those adaptations to take place. I'm a fond believer there's two ways that we adapt. We, or we recover, sorry. We either recover to adapt, and we do that through rest and getting a decent night's sleep and eating like an actual fucking adult, or we recover to go again. And that's where we utilize the notion of light compression and um, cold water therapy, et cetera. 
the two different ways that you do that. The harder you train, the more stress that you apply on the body, the harder it is for you to recover from because you have to give more time and people don't like that. One of the one of the things you find when I coach some of these most hardest elite athletes in the world is that they don't think they've got the time to recover. They need to go again and again and again and constantly apply horrendous stimulus because they think that's going to adapt them. But it doesn't. You can't just keep growing and growing and growing and growing. It doesn't work like that. You have to let the body relax and let those adaptations take place. Now, if we're competing, that's different. That's where we recover to go again. That's where in the moment that we don't need adaptation now, we've done that, we've achieved that, we've rested, we've deloaded before this competition. Remember, we test, we train, we compete, and then we repeat the cycle. Your competition becomes your test, and we repeat the cycle because we should never be settled. We should never, ever settle on what we've just done. Winning one gold medal is pretty cool, but winning fucking multiple sustainability of performance, that's cooler. So we keep going and keep going and keep going. What most people do is they try and compete, 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 compete. That's why Olympians have four-year cycles, because we want to see the very, very best of them every four years. So they have all these time, and they do big competitions, they go and compete to get there, but ultimately the big one is there. And that's very hard to do that time and time again. That's where these elite athletes that I coach get very confused that when I come in and go, chill out, just relax now. <laughs> Today's an easy ride. Today's about spinning your legs. Like, I need to redline. I need to do what you've just said I'm going to do every single day. Because if it doesn't hurt, then they haven't achieved anything. And that's one of the problems that we see. And that's just through, you know, and you'd often get misinformation again online by seeing these crazy things that people do. People just go along with it because that's all that they know. They think pain is correct. Stress is correct, but in the right places. I utilize the notion of minimal effect. Those We do the bare minimum to get the biggest bang for our buck. That's when we then go find out what that mental resilience is all about. Now, a lot of people listening, especially in the US, in the fire service, our average work week is 56 hours a week. So that's 24 hours with no sleep and a shift and then a 48-hour period and then you're back. So basically every third day for 10, 20, 30 years, you're not sleeping all night. That's just the fact of because we do the fire and the EMS here. Talk to me about through a, a coach's perspective, the importance of sleep in the rest and recovery equation. Sleep hygiene is so important. It is the most underutilized form of recovery out there. You get all of these people who come to me and they're like, I've, look at this new foam rolling thing I've got. Uh, I get in an ice bath every single morning. I can sit there facing the sun for 15 minutes and I, I journal, I do all this shit. But yet and all, they haven't got the foundation set. They're not sleeping as much as they possibly can. That's what you need to do. Cut all this bullshit out and start sleeping. It is like, it's like a performance enhancing drug that people aren't utilizing because it's, they think that, ah, and what winds me up as well is where you get people, you've set me off by here, by the way. You get these people are like, nah, you've got, you need to get up at four in the morning. And that's great once, but can you sustain it? And then you see these programs where like, you better start work at seven, so I can't, I've got traveling by six, I've got to be up, we'll get up earlier. Well, yeah, can you sustain it? And it's like, and that's absolutely fine. You can get up at four, you can get up at five and go and train. Brilliant. But, You've got to go to bed earlier the night before. So can you get all the shit that you need to do? Can you go to work? And then, as you've just said, you're in these days where you're not sleeping. And then you've got to go home and be a father. You've got to go home and be something. You don't just go home and sleep. You haven't got that luxury. We're not elite athletes. 
We're not elite sporting athletes, should I say. So there's so much shit that you've got to do that you have to account for. Now, if someone, rather than going and spending all this money on compression tights and um, myofascial release and, you know, whatever else it is that the, the latest trend that's going on out there, just fucking get, just go to, just go to bed. Just go and get your head down for a little bit longer and you will adapt so much more. If you train hard, you've got to sleep. You have to. Your sleep hygiene is so, so important. H2F, the US military out there, one of the biggest things is sleep hygiene. Um, when I've read the report on it, it's a really huge focus on sleep. Now, same again from a soldier point of view. Often we have no idea when our next time we're going to get our head down. But in that moment, we're competing. We're either testing, training, or competing. That's fine because we've trained accordingly for that. But in training, that's where we have to let those adaptations take place. That's where you need the sleep. Now, on your cycle, if that's once every three days, then we can train and we can accommodate that. That's us then competing. So there's no point in us trying to train and get a huge stimulus out of that if we ain't sleeping. Because it's probably going to have a negative effect on you because your recovery is going to fall backwards and fall down. So training really hard. I can imagine, I bet there's a study out there, but it's probably not, but if we could do one, where it'd be um, 12 hours either side of that 24-hour shift, the likelihood of injury and the increase, what that would look like. That's what I would be doing straight away. Straight away, I'd be going in there saying, right, what is the likelihood of injury? 24 hours either side. So, and it would be, might come a case where it increases by 80%, right? Well, guess what? No one trains at that moment. Because long-term sustainability, I need you every three days for the next 10 years. If you're going to get injured, then I ain't getting you. Someone else has got to fill that void. So that no one trains then. So here's what we're going to do instead. We're going to train here, 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 and here. These are your moments to train. Or... 24 hours has to go and we have to bring other people in or whatever it looks like. But sleep is so, so important. And it's very rare that we can talk about that as a tactical athlete because when we're in the competition phase of whatever that looks like, we have no idea how long we're going to get. I don't even know what's behind the next door that I'm just about to breach. So never mind how much sleep I'm going to get. So that's rare. But in training, we have to let those adaptations take place. If we want to become an athlete, you've got to sleep. I've asked so many people this question from so many disciplines, and it's the same thing. I mean, Stuart McGill, one of the, the famous um, back health you know, gurus, he's like, well, it's not if you're going to get hurt, you will get hurt. If you're not sleeping, that's when you rest and repair. And then obviously, like you said, the cognitive side of making mistakes. And I would argue in the, the American Fire Service, a lot of our line of duty deaths were actually at least partially sleep deprivation related. You know, we, we wreck at intersections, we fall off ladders, we get lost searching buildings. And the insanity of our work week is again that false economy conversation and i'm um, part of a research study in november thank god where they're going to collate a lot of this from the military from the sporting arena and present it to the fire service like you, you are so far from human performance but if we're not understanding exactly what you've just said then we break like i've got meniscus surgeries on both knees i had a back injury luckily i was able to rehab with foundation training which if you haven't heard of that you got to dive into that it's amazing but and that was, you know, I was a, an athlete that did take my strength and conditioning seriously, that did do yoga and meditation and at least offset some of the damage. But we just break physically. We break mentally. Yeah. I mean, you know, addiction and suicide are, are huge in our professions. And I, my whole argument is like, if we just need to put more time between shifts, if we're going to ask someone to go from a dead sleep to climbing Brent Grenfell Tower then you have to give them more time to rest and recover. And the, U the UK fire service, I believe the work week is 40 or 42 hours. And they're here, like I said, 56. So it's almost like two full days more every week that we work. So when, 
if we can get to a critical mass where all these gurus are saying the same thing, then you can present the false economy conversation again. Look, we put more people into the fire service, you will actually save a lot of money because they won't break and they will be able to perform when mm -hmm. you need them. The simplest way is often the best. People get wound up and confused about all these sorts of ways, but the simplest way is often the best. And if that's get more sleep, then, you know, the, the need drives the movement. So it's the same as when we want to adapt something, the need is driven by the movement. So if that's to get more sleep, then get more sleep. How is that? How are we possibly in a position where if that's affecting people, why can't we change it? And it's not like it's, um, you know, operational effectiveness is going to go down because there must be a better way. Must be. I don't understand the patterns. I don't know how many people you've got, but I'd like to think I could walk in there with absolutely zero experience firefighting and go, got a better idea to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been trying, trying to preach that. And it's, like I said, the money is there. It's just, it's just not being the hero in that budget year. And that's the big thing, the ego side. Well, speaking of longevity, obviously, especially in the military, you get a lot of people that, you know, will do one or two, um, you know, four year, three year periods and then transition out in the fire service and, and police. Usually we're there for 20, 25, sometimes even 30 years. And obviously in the military, you know, those veterans that do stay for the full 20, you know, there's a lot of experience that comes with that. Through a coach's eye again, how do you adjust your training to the aging athlete once these these um you know soldiers start getting to the kind of like the either side of 40 and beyond we individualize it the same as what we do to an 18 year old it's individual to them and their environment now we both know that um as you age things get a little bit stiffer joints hurt a little bit creak when you get out of bed but that's because we did the wrong things back in the day and it's also be what we have to have consideration of is just pre and prior training. You're going to have to be spend a little bit more time on yourself. So warming up into that moment or what you do post training and how your training affects subsequent training. But again, it just comes back down to that individual bias. Understand the person and create incredible programs to suit them. Now, if they apply effort at the other end of that prescription, you'll win every single time. But it's the same detail. It's exactly the same. Now, what about the philosophy on aging? I just did a, a firefighter competition I do every year, and it's like a, a fundraiser, a 9-11 tribute, and it was awful <laughs> again. And I always compete in the – there's a master's division, but I compete with, with a friend of mine in the regular division because, again, my philosophy in the fire service is the people waiting to be rescues don't care if I'm 49 years old or 18 years old. They just want me to get from – where I was to them and then back down. So yeah. we have, again, following the American model, there's this kind of mentality that like 40 years old and it's, it's normal to be on blood pressure meds and carry a little extra weight and that kind of thing. What is your perspective of the older soldier? I mean, how how should they be looking at that? Because there's, there's even in the, the kind of fitness stand as well, we're going to lower it because, you know, they're, they're 40 now or they're 50. My thing is the ladder is a ladder, a hose is a hose. It doesn't matter. So male, female, gay, straight, you know, 18 or 50, we all have to move the same things. We all have to do the same job. Now, I'm not asking someone to deadlift 500. I'm just asking you to be able to move the tools that we need to save a life. So 
has does your perspective change on the age of the athlete or are you still holding them to a certain parameter as far as be able to do the job depends on the job but whatever job they're in they have to be readily available to do that so it doesn't matter what gender you are how old you are i don't give a shit we changed it to gender free age free testing over here i was one of the people to do that and that was just the case that if you are in that position then you train accordingly to go and do that and if you can't do that it's not because of your age it's because you didn't train effectively enough you've not trained enough now we can train absolutely everyone for individualization but as you've just said the enemy don't give a shit how old you are They're not going to ask the question that ladder does not care the hose and its weight does not care it doesn't think you're special because you're over 40. You get it done. You get the job done. You'll find a way. But ultimately, how we get each person to go and achieve the same thing is different because we are all biologically different. So it doesn't matter whether I've got 121-year-old stood in front of me or 100 people ranging from 21 all the way up to 50. Every single person will be on an individual training program to ensure that they hit that aim. One of the examples of that is one of my first students I got was Chilwell engineering unit and it was also the pre-deployment training for going over to various operations around the world there was a hq element there with everyone probably double my age um minimum and when i first seen the training program it was when i was like no wonder your pass rate is so low it was it was outrageous by the way it was very low by the time i'd left there we had 100 of the people passing the test 100%. Not one single person failed. And that was because I went to each individual and trained them accordingly. Now, this cost me so much time. It was not efficient, but I made it happen because there's a way to go and do it. Whether that was calculate the distance around the HQ because these are busy people. So rather than them walk 20 minutes up to the gym and 20 minutes back and only achieve a 20-minute session, I'd go to them. I would drag a rower down from the gym, work out their max aerobic speed and the exact amount of meters per second they could travel on that rower and write a program for them in their office. Done. There you go. You do that. Do that only. Don't do anything else. Now crack on me your job. There's no excuses. I will individualize train. I will make sure that you do it. What happened over the first two weeks was hard work for me. But after that, they just started following because results spark confidence and they can start to feel themselves getting better you're an athlete, sir. I don't care how old you are. You are now an athlete. You have to train. It's 440 meters around HQ. I've calculated how many times you can run that in 20 minutes. We're going to work at 80% of your macrobic speed today. So you're going to do it this many times. Go. Very, very simple. You've now got a target. You're an athlete. You don't have to think about it. You've got so much shit to do. Let me do the thinking. You be the athlete. For one hour, whatever it looks like. Whether that's eight minutes for the tobacco session. I don't care what it looks like. This is what you're going to do. I would go there with a plan. We'd implement the plan. We'd make theory go into practice. They'd be the athlete for whatever time frame they had given that day because I would check their, check their program as well. And they'd go back to work. Lo and behold, everything went through the roof, whether that was tactical, technical, physiological, psychological adaptations, all went up. There was better soldiers. There was better commanders. And 100% of the people in that building passed. And I walked away and then I got a won a couple of awards and, and and went on to the next bigger thing. Now, what about mobility? I mean, when I was young, it was stretching, you know, and you're doing all the all the static stretches or even the, the um, God, what they call it, when you're like flinging yourself around. Um, now, obviously, we're understanding a little bit more dynamic, um, you know, movement warming up, but there's also the element of muscle imbalances that are a big part of mobility. 
you have you know a bunch of young tactical athletes that are having to ruck in boots that are having to have a huge amount of of weight on their back and especially as these people start to progress their career and do start getting older what is your philosophy on mobility as a whole keep moving movement is medicine but moving across a, a plethora of range so your range of movement should you know and, and what you need is dependent on what the aim is but just keep moving in all sorts of ranges as often as you possibly can lifting heavy and move and just keep doing it and the moment you stop mobility will take you know take its soul on you but that's what happens what happens with absolutely anyone you use it or lose it same as mat reading if you don't mat read for a long period of time you can't do it anymore because you're just so easily lost because it's not something that we do every day like climbing the stairs you use it or lose it in strength in mobility in everything now i know you've worked with fighters that is a group of athletes that i like to train, you know, mirror their training. I'm a, I'm a combat athlete as well myself. I don't compete, but I've been a martial artist my whole life. But the um, unpredictability of an MMA fight is very much like the unpredictability of God knows what we're going to get. Because as a firefighter and a paramedic, you're literally jack of all trades, master of none. You might have to. I've I've got tree trimmers out of trees before. You know, going down sewers, going to burning buildings, extrication tools. So it really does mimic it very well. When did you start working with the mixed martial artists and, and how does that program, um, how is it similar or different to the soldier? Same detail, completely individualized to the person and their strengths and weaknesses. But what separates us, my team, and why we're so successful in what we do in whatever sporting context that is, whether that's tactical or whatever, um, if that's mixed martial arts, is that we are a very fond believer of staying in our lane. To get better at your sport, do your sport. And we are very, very aware that the most beneficial thing that our MMA fighters can do, whether they're at the top peak in the UFC or whatever it looks like, the best thing for them to do is do the sport. So what they do on the mats and in the octagon is the single most important. We supplement that by understanding what the movements look like. We make them stronger, fitter, faster in every single area. The sack same is what I treat with tactical athletes. I've utilized the terms well: physiological, psychological, tactical, technical. Now, when people come to me for uh, programming for, for to become a tactical athlete, mostly it's to get into some sort of special forces around the world, whether that's over your end or in, in, over in Britain. I make it abundantly clear that if you're coming to me for tactical and technical help, i.e. soldiering, we're in big trouble. <laughs> Something's gone really wrong. I'm out that game now. I will help you physiologically and psychologically to supplement what you do. But ultimately, if you want to get into special forces, you better be a good soldier. That's on you. I will make sure that fitness is never an issue, ever. I will do everything in my power to ensure that your body won't break down and you've got the physical capacity and competency to go and pass the course. But ultimately, it's going to come down to the soldier. The same with the MMA guys. I'm going to make you fitter, faster, stronger, more robust. I'm going to give you an engine that no one else can match. But ultimately, you better go and match that on the mats in the octagon as a fighter. That's plain and simple. We stay in our lane. We're very, very good at doing that. And I think that's why loads of people like to work with us. And with the fire service, like I said, I did CrossFit, you know, muscular endurance, that kind of thing is excellent. But what I realized is we didn't really move weight over distance in the CrossFit space. So that's why I brought in the sleds, the sandbags, those kind of things. And it really did mirror yes, a lot of the things that we do. What are some of the tools that you bring in for that particular community yourself? For, and from a fire, for a firefighter's community? Yeah, if it, if it was a firefighter. It, Exactly the same as what you just said. So even whatever job you just mentioned before, whether whether you're getting 
that strimmer out the tree or whatever it looks like when you're moving to there and I utilise this notion whenever guys are going over the hills for special forces you're going to spend 100% of your time on one leg because you're always going to be moving so unilateral strength is really really key for tactical athlete development we can do a foundation we can get very very strong in the moment by ensuring that we're very very strong bilaterally very very strong because we lift loads of weight on two legs but the biggest one is core stability. And I use Stuart McGill, as you mentioned before, I utilise his big three. I call it the big three plus one because I've gone one step further. The pl- And I utilise that as like a warm-up for every single session. The big three is what Stuart does. The plus one is something that crosses over to the subsequent session. I.e., if we're going to do a squat session, then I will have the guys hanging from a bar and lifting their knees up and towards their chest. If you can consider that as a squat, it's exactly the same movement, triple flexion, triple extension at the... Um, ankles, knees and hips same so it's something that crosses over but still the core is doing all the work so little and often core stability for a firefighter you are going to be required to move ridiculous things in ridiculous terrain under ridiculous circumstances so how do we mirror that we have we can't just do traditional lifts can't just go and sit on machines that don't ask questions of stability and stabilize the various parts of the body so that's why I like to utilize unilateral stuff Dumbbells are really, really good, but moving things like balls, like sleds, anything that we can move into a functional element is key. But we have to learn the right to do that by, first of all, creating a foundation strength, and then we can start moving these things into all sorts of different directions to mirror what you exactly what you're going to do. What you just said is, is really, really good, mate. You've brought in these things. Beautiful. Yeah, it wasn't a strimmer on a tree. It was actually a human being trimming a tree, but just a little lesson learned. If you're going to trim a tree, <laughs> don't start at the I bottom. D- I limbs. wasn't going to ask the question how he got up there, but don't worry about that then. Well, he, he decided he was going to cut the limbs as he went up and then dislocated his shoulder on the very last one, like 20 feet in the air. So we had to go up and, and bring his ass down. So <laughs> nice, mate. interesting call. All right. Well, then you mentioned your books. Let's talk about that first. And I want to throw some closing questions at you. So tell me about the book and people listening where they can get it. Yeah. So it's called The Red on Revolution. Um, I believe it's just gone back to number one this weekend after that talk I did at the International Fitness Summit, which is pretty cool. And it's all about my philosophies of coaching and the lessons I've learned over the years and how you can implement that into both as an athlete, as a coach, as a businessman or woman. And the idea behind it is that uh, when I, when the book publishers um, contacted me and I, I got the deal for the book, we we then went into um, an exclusive deal with Audible to release it strictly as audio for the first 12 months. When I did that, I realized that um, I didn't want just my voice on it. Um, I wanted it every single 40 minutes to change the voice and change the tone. So what I did is... Um, I came up with the idea that I'm going to provide you with some rationale about how I got this thought, the science behind it to back it up, the experience I then utilized it. And if you don't believe me, here's the world's strongest brothers for, as an example of strength. So I would talk about strength. Here's how I utilized it in the military. This is all the science to back it up. And if you don't believe me, here's literally Tom and Luke Stockman to come on and talk. And me and we talk about it. I then talked to... Um, Again, moving into the functional space and we get like Tom Aspinall, a top five UFC fighter. He comes on and has a little chat. Um, I then have special forces guys come on and, and tell us what makes them different. One of the best things that I found in the book, and I don't want to ruin it for anybody who's going to go and listen, is I ask the question to every single one of them. And these are all elite people at the top end of the spectrum, whether that's in business, whether that's in the UFC or special forces, the top of the tree in the strongest, in a strong one competition. I ask the question about what's next. 
because my final chapter in the book is what's next and where do we go from here? And every single person used the word dominance. And it was so powerful and so unscripted. And I literally asked the same questions to each person, what's next? And he all in one way or another utilized the term dominance. And it's so powerful. It made me realize straight away that we never, ever sell, ever, under any circumstances. You know, and, and I've done that throughout everything. You know, I mentioned before, no one's trying to kill me anymore. Really, really good. I go home every single night after spending years and years away in the various jobs I did. And I'm still not content, still not happy, still want more. I'm still striving every single day to go and get more. And I think that's a really powerful thing that we can utilize and we can take away from any walk of life, whether that's business, whether that's as an athlete, as a coach, whatever it looks like. If you just keep striving, if you just keep turning up every single day to be a better person, perpetual growth, you used it perfectly before, you'll grow and you'll become a better person than you used to be. Well, that leads me to a question I meant to ask you before we got to the closing. So let me slide it in quickly. One area that a lot of people in uniform suffer from or struggle with is the transition out. So you have been in uniform now as, as a first responder or a soldier for a long time. That is now your tribe. That is your purpose. That is your why. And then one day it's not and your ID doesn't work and you're on the other side of that. What was your transition like personally and then how did you navigate to where you are now with a successful business well i got quite lucky because my transition started when i went over to pt core so i left ultimately to, to get into pt core you're selected for it you're going past um, a certain course and then you spend nine months on this on this next course so over that nine months i was making the transition out i was also my final year of uni then which was absolutely horrendous by the way to do both at the same time do not recommend that anyway as well but I was almost halfway out because the way I could see it, I was almost like I've gone from being a paratrooper three weeks out the four away all the time, wherever I, wherever I get sent to. I had no idea I could go on leave. I had no idea where I was next on exercise or next on um, next away. And so I was almost half out. So I got very lucky. Now, when I got out as well, I still work very, very closely with the military. Still got contracts in the military. So. I'm almost half in and half out. So I'm very, very lucky that I haven't ha just had to go from having all my friends around me, that social development, train every single morning. I used to walk out my room and there'd be my day would be on a piece of paper. And I would live by that every single day, which is so bizarre to think about as a soldier. We used to call orders, go out and I'd read it. And I'd just literally, I would skim it and look for my name and go, oh, brilliant. <laughs> nothing for me into action today. And it would just tell me where I needed to be every single day. And I tried to tell my wife that now, and she's like, it's the most bizarre thing ever, isn't it? And if you can imagine living in a, in a hotel with your best friends and someone's going to tell you exactly what you need to do every single day, they're going to feed you, they're going to give you everything that you need, every tool that you need to go and achieve what you need to do the following day. How easy is that as a life? So to get out and miss that is quite big. Um, and as you as you rightly put before, people leave that a lot earlier than what they do in like the likes of the fire service and the police. So all of a sudden they go from something to nothing very, very quickly. And I see I've got friends who spiraled out of control and the suicide rate is ridiculous. Um, but I was very, very lucky. But what I have done is I've ensured that I've kept some good people around me. And I've utilized every tool I've ever done, every created, ever come across in the military and put that into practice and everything. So every single company I own now is called Red On something. 
I own a company called Red On Socks, the fastest growing sock company in the country. I've got the Red On Revolution, which is the number one best-selling book. I've got a top 100 fitness app called the Red On Challenge. Everything starts with Red On. I now own the Red On Performance Center, and which have the world's most elite athletes coming through. Um, pretty much the hardest athletes in the world, with and without weapons, come through these doors, which is pretty cool. The Red On has derived from the red light that flashes just before we leave the aircraft. So when we leave the aircraft, there's a bridge paratrooper, a red light comes on, we get ready, we stand in the door, check equipment, green light flash, and you better be ready on that command to leave the aircraft. Because if you don't, you're going to end up in another place that you shouldn't be. The red light is often neglected. We often don't think about it. We think about the green light, and everyone talks about the green light and being ready on green. But the red's the most important. And the red can be utilised in an analogy for every walk of life. Uh, the start of a football game, when the whistle goes, that's your green light. But the red light is everything you've done prior. What did you do prior to make sure that you are ready for that green light? When the call comes in and you jump in the wagon as a firefighter, that's your green light. But what have you done prior to everything, to the build-up to that? They are all your red lights. So everything I do now is all about preparation for absolutely anything. If the lift goes out at work and you've got to climb those stairs, that's your green light. Are you ready for that? You've got to be ready for absolutely everything. So my red on is all about that. Preparation is key. And I did that before I left. I ensured that I was prepared for this moment. I ensured that everything was in place so that first and foremost, I could feed my family. It's the primary concern. And the moment I could do that and I started coaching these elite athletes all around the world, I was okay. I could make the leap. Let's go. But I ensured I was ready for that moment. I create a foundation of strength for every athlete when we're trying to develop them physically. I create a foundation for every single business to ensure I could develop from. They're my red lights to ensure that whatever gets thrown at me, that green light comes on, I am ready for it. Well, firstly, I love that analogy. Absolutely love it. Secondly, hearing your backstory, being the the kind of caretaker ultimately of your sister and your mother, sadly, how did that factor into the father that you are today? Um, a lot of the times I just think, well, would my dad do that? And if I think he would, then I probably don't do it. But I, um, do you know what? There's nothing I love more in this world than my two little babies. I would do absolutely anything for them. And I ensure that at every step of the way, I'm there for them in whatever they want to do. And no matter what happens, no matter what happens in my life, where I'm successful in business, even if my book flopped and my app flopped and I didn't sell any socks, which is still pretty weird, Whatever happens, I'll always be a good dad, no matter what. We don't need money for that. Um, we don't need success and fame. We don't need anything to be a good dad. So just be a good person, I think. And, I, and I, that's all I want to be is I want to ensure that I'm there for them every single step of the way and I will never, ever leave their side. And I want to, long, I want to have longevity and health. So that's why I train. That's my why now. And I'm there for them every day to ensure I'm the best dad at Bali, to ensure... I can walk them down the aisle in the future and to ensure that I live as long as I possibly can to see every single second of them growing up. That's why. That's what I'll always do. And that's why I think I'm a good dad. I love it. I'm writing a second book at the moment and the, the kind of core story is multi-generational trauma. And the idea being that you can stop that pattern, that one day, you know, especially for alcoholism, for example, you know, it was your father and your grandfather, whatever it was, that it doesn't have to be straight away. You can go through an absolute, you know, dark place, but you can one day turn around and say, the buck stops here. And I think as we talked about earlier, 
mentorship is so important but they, there's a quote if you want to change the world start at home i believe that completely you know not all homes sadly have mother and father in them as you well know but whatever capacity we can we make sure that we you know our home is as healthy as possible and then as i mentioned before you walk outside your front door and go who else can i have a little capacity to help some other people you know my daughter's friend or whatever it is how else can I help in my community? And if we all just did that, that is the leadership, not the person in the fucking House of Parliament or the White House, but every single mother and father in their home stepping up a little bit more and trying to change, you know, if, they, if they're part of this domino effect, knock that domino down. Don't let it affect you and then your children anymore. Of course, and that's, that's all we can do, man. It's, this, it's the only thing we can do. You know, if you if you... If you do one thing, it's just be a nice person in whatever that way is. And even if you haven't got kids, if you're just a nice person, you'll be all right. Um, and as I mentioned before, you know, success often doesn't come to nice people, but it does come full circle. Um, and all I want to do is be a great dad and I will do absolutely anything to, to, to achieve that. Beautiful. Well, we talked about your book. So the first of the closing questions, is there a book written by someone else that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Well, I read um, Atomic Habits about two months ago. And the similarities between some of the things I write in my book and that was incredible. And I was I was actually taken, taken away by it a little bit. Um, he meant he says it a lot more from an academic setting. I say it a lot more from um, a practical and experienced setting and how I've came to this conclusion. So he has a lot of data and science to back it up. I mean, it was good. It had an awful lot of quotes and all sorts of other other shit. I listened to the audiobook actually when I was driving somewhere constantly. And every third paragraph is to go to this link button. That wound me up a little bit, but I can imagine that the book is a lot better. But um yeah, so I, I've, I've always said that if you go and read my book, and it's actually when you go on Audible now and listen to The Red on Revolution, if you look at um, books we recommend, if Audible, uh, and you can see at the bottom, it always comes up, um, Atomic Habits. There's, 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 there's some great similarities in there. And I'm a very fond believer, by the way, and is is that I will never read or listen to something that, that doesn't teach me something. And what I mean by that is I don't ever read, like, um, fictional books or anything like that everything's got to be factual normally science-based normally something to do that i will go and develop something along the lines of what i'm interested in so i've always a fond believer that um never read it unless it teaches you something i mean you're not going to know that so you read it but you can start with it you can start with um, factual books and you'll be all right brilliant well what about a movie or a documentary film or documentary um, so there's some great documentaries out actually now about the Paris. So one of them is called Paris Men of War. Um, that's pretty powerful. Um, it showcases sort of what happens in Defo. It hides a lot of the stuff, but there's 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 some good things in there. Um, yeah, that would be something I'd highly recommend, especially for the guys over in America. They probably don't understand that part, but Paris Men of War is pretty cool. Beautiful. All right. Well, then speaking of great people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Um, there's a guy who's doing wonderful things now from a business set and he's a former paratrooper. His name's Lee Matthews, he's a very good friend of mine. He was actually a world champion kickboxer. He now owns the largest 
I believe it's the largest kickboxing um, business in the country. I might, I might be wrong on that, but he's incredibly knowledgeable and powerful in regards to how he's transitioned out of the military or out of that tactical scene and into business and the things that he does. And he's taught me an awful lot about that. So I'd highly recommend Lee comes on. He's a very, very cool bloke as well. Brilliant. Yeah, if you can help me make the connection, I'd love to have him on. Thank you. Yeah, and then any of the, you know, the, the as there's another guy called Staz as well who owns a company called Frudark. Um, he's in my book as well. And what he has done, um, he's the he's SBS. Um, he's a good lad. Um, him and you probably know Ant Middleton sit in the same unit. Um, again, he's in my book. He, those two are really good lads, and I can I can I can make those connections. They they've got some um, powerful antidotes that we can use for all sorts of walks of life, and they've been through an awful lot of shit. So they uh, they'd be good to have them. Right, yeah. So Staz has been on the show. Actually, I had lunch with him in Dubai. I went around the world with some special ops guys um, in February, ah, nice. and we okay. met up there. So because uh, Through Dark was one of the sponsors of that that um, uh, endeavor that we were on. But Ants is someone I've wanted to get on as well. So I'd love that as another well. Guy, Simon Jeffries, another guy as well. All SBS for some reason. Um, but yeah, the, uh, Simon Jeffries is a pretty cool guy. The people always always say that Simon's me, but for the mind. So what I do for people's bodies. Those going on like SF uh, courses and stuff, he does the same for the mindset, and he's he's also in my book. And um, again, really, really, really cool guy. I've just done a YouTube thing with him as well. So there's a couple of videos called "Hard to Kill" in regards to um, what it takes to make a special forces operator. Brilliant. He comes over to the center and tests with us as well. Well, it sounds like another great person. So thank you. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and all the products. What do you do to decompress? Oh, uh, I train uh, and I get away from work. I close my laptop and I spend as much time as I possibly can with my family. My currency in life now is time. And I've had so much time taken away from me doing things all around the world that have been out of my control. And now my currency is time. So I spend as much time as I possibly can doing the shit I love to do, which is spend time with my family and train with my mates. Fantastic. So... For people to find you online, find you know the the book, find the socks, all you know all the the training platforms. Where are the best places to go? So most people find me on Instagram at Coach Mike Chadwick. Um, that's probably across all social media platforms. Or you can go on CoachMikeChadwick.com, um, and there's loads of links there. But ultimately, the book is the Red on Revolution, um, and I also have an app called the Red on Challenge. But ultimately, those who are going on any sort of like special forces courses go on my tier one, which you can get at coachmychadwick.com. Um, it's an application-only process, and you have to go through a full screening call with myself and my team in order for us to align and ensure that we're the right fit to go on and do something very special together. Brilliant. Well, Mike, I want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. Um, another layer to you know to this physical and mental thriving journey that I'm trying to send people on, but your perspective, not only from the military point of view, obviously from the personal point of view, but now what you're doing, and especially a transition story, which I think is very powerful, is amazing. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the show today. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it.